Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. good to see you all this morning, and uh, it's especially good to see Glenn and Jude, the newlyweds, with their bright and sh- shiny faces, and uh, was, they had really had a fabulous day here a few weeks ago, and I uh, have to just say, uh, Jude, those, those shoes, they just really, they stole the show, <laughs> a real trendsetter, and with a few eminent newlyweds, uh, just less than a week to go now, and I uh, want to wish Rosie and Curtis all the best on their big day uh, next Saturday. So. <clears throat> All the weddings happening in this church this past year, I don't know what the rest of us are going to do. All the options are, are slowly falling off the shelf. You know, we're going to have to start a group, maybe. Purrs and spurs is what we call them. But, uh, but just today, by way of disclaimer, you know, I was laughing. Someone said to me recently that uh, they were talking about the people that speak in the church regularly, and they were saying about, you know, if they have a Northern Ireland style, and said, Dave, no, not really. Stephanie, no. Scott, not really. John. <laughs> And they said they're sometimes a little bit triggered when we go to speak it, but then they're waiting for this fire and brimstone, and then out comes radical love and inclusion. So if this is a, if this is a kind of new to you today, don't be triggered by the style. Just maybe hang on in there a little moment for the content. But at the moment, we're actually on the book of Acts, so we're, we're journeying through Acts, and today we're in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bible with you, or it'll be on the screen behind me, we're going to go through it. This is actually one of the longest chapters in the book of Acts, which kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into how valuable Luke thought this chapter was and the significance of this chapter. And so this might be an unfamiliar story to some of you, but we're not going to take the time to read it all, but I will go through the story as we're speaking today. But we're going to break into the chapter at verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way if they're being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This might uh, seem like a strange question to begin with, but how well do you pay attention to your posture? Of course, you know that your posture is the position in which you hold your body. And that communicates far more than any of us are probably actually aware of. So social scientists are all agreed that only 7% of our communication to others is based upon the actual words that we say. 38% is our tone of voice. But 55% is our body language or our posture, what we communicate with our nonverbals, with our gestures, with our jaws, with our eyebrows. So, I mean, have you ever seen a person walking into a room and right away you know that they're the one in charge? Or have you ever heard it said before, the eyes are the windows of the soul? Or sometimes when you're speaking up at the front like this and you look down, body language says a lot. Occasionally you'll see slouching, occasionally raised eyebrows, clenched jaws, furrowed eyebrows, tightened necks. Doesn't really engender that much confidence in the speaker. <laughs> but there are two specific postures that I want you to think about today, the difference between among which can reflect a lot of things. First posture is a closed posture. So here's a person sitting there, their arms are folded, their legs are crossed. They're positioned at a slight right angle from you. Do you know what we call those barriers? We call those barriers that communicate distance, reluctance, non-openness. So they may be sitting there, smiling, enjoying a pleasant conversation, but their body language, even when they're not aware of it, is communicating something very different. And then on the other hand, you have someone who's sitting there directly facing you. Their hands are apart. They're maybe resting on the arms of their chair or on their lap. They're relaxed and comfortable. That's what we call an open posture. They're interested. They're receptive. They're ready to listen and to learn. No defenses are up. And right now, I've got you all really paranoid. You're all checking your postures as you sit there in your chairs. It's something that you should check out because it's a true thing. May, may not be able to read a person's thoughts, but if you're clued in enough, you'll be able to learn an awful lot, 55%, from the way a person holds themselves. And especially true if a person's words and their body language don't match. And you would know that on a regular basis, I hang out with therapists, one of whom is here today. And sometimes you come in on a Sunday and he lets you away with nothing. How was your week? Great, but you just can feel his eyes <laughs> reading through your body language. In any case, you say, what's that got to do with anything today? Well, actually, it's got everything to do with this chapter, and especially whenever it comes to examining the posture of your heart and finding out whether you have an open one or a closed one, whether inwardly all the hatches are battened down and the wood has been nailed in and your mind is made up already, or whether you're leaning in and your eyes and your ears are full of curiosity and engagement and you're just waiting to see what it is that God is yet to teach you. 
I'm going to read again what is perhaps the most startling verse in the whole chapter. And let me read it from the paraphrase of the Message Bible, verse 34. Then Peter exploded with his good news. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer that God has no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is open. You know, no one, I bet, was more surprised than Peter when those words fell out of his mouth. Because when he said them, he was standing in the living room of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, which was an officer over about 100 soldiers in the Roman army. We're told he lived in Caesarea, which was a seaport town in the, along the Mediterranean coast. According to Luke, Cornelius was a good and a decent person. He's well regarded by the Jewish nation. He was a God-fearer. That means someone who honored and believed in Israel's God. So, still a Gentile, he kept a certain distance. Maybe he went along to the synagogue. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't keep kosher. He didn't regard the food laws. But he was a God-fearer. And you already know the rumors about the tension that existed in that world between the Jews and the Gentiles. It could be pretty nasty. In fact, the more accurate truth is that the tension between them was on a bit of a continuum. So over here, among the really more strict conservative Jews, you had those who believed that the Gentiles were just plain filthy, that they were hopelessly immoral, that they were prone to all kinds of uh, excess idolatry. And the only reason God had even created them in the first place was to uh, fuel the fires of Gehenna. And then over here on the more lenient side, there were Jews that kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt. And they tried as best they could to live in harmony with them. Their philosophy in life was live and let live. The only thing is, they just would never be able to eat with them. That's all. That's where they drew the line, a table fellowship. Because you just never knew if you were sitting having dinner with the Gentiles, they might slip up and they might, you know, put pork in the beans like what Lucas does sometimes on Friday nights. Or they might, you know, you, you might just serve the, some, put some milk, you know, in, in, in with the meat. You never know, and that would just be plain awful. And some of you that perhaps are celiac or gluten-free might understand a little bit of that predicament. Because I don't know how to overemphasize, overemphasize this. I wish there was some way that we could really understand how important the dietary laws were to the people of Israel. See, most of us, have eaten bacon buddies and sausage suppers all our whole lives. Wouldn't think twice about putting a bit of milk into meat. We'd do it with stews and stroganoffs all the time. But you know that for the ancient Jew, the mere thought of that was enough to make them break out in a cold sweat. You know, I have to share this with you, but there's a lad has been coming along to the long table on a Friday night. Some of you will know him, Ahmed. He belongs to the Muslim Sudanese group that meet here on a Friday night. He's such a lovely lad. And he comes every week, and uh, on Friday night we had a really brilliant chat, and he was telling me about what it was like growing up in the desert of Sudan, where his father taught him how to slay a lion. I said, all I had to worry about was wasps, and you were slaying lions and tigers and stepping, getting bitten in the legs by snakes. But we were, we were chatting on Friday night, and uh, I, was, I was just reminded the very first time that he came to the long table, and he wanted to kind of help, I'd, I'd slice my finger on the knife. And I said to him, sure, here, uh, you, you take over for me. And I was doing the cooking that night, and I was actually making uh, a sausage casserole. And uh, it wasn't until 
we were about halfway through the sausages that I noticed that the uh, lovely brown complexion of his face had turned into five different shades of green. And it just dawned on me on that moment that it had just dawned on him that what he was cutting up, much to his horror, was pork. And so, you know, it was his first night at the long table and I just led him into a sacrilegious act and it's been so embarrassing. But that's the kind of way it was for the ancient Jews. The food laws were tied up with their identity, their theology, their self-understanding. And if you really can't grasp that, then maybe today think about something that is the dividing line between Christians and other people. That one thing that makes us who we are, that one non-negotiable, that one thing that you cannot let slip without letting slide our whole identity as the people of God. Well, once you've figured out what that is, get ready to let it go. Because that's what Peter did in this chapter. He had to. Because God gave him a vision, a word that was so radical and so overhauling that it changed everything he had ever believed about who he was and how he was to live in the world. You see, we're told at the end of the last chapter that he was staying in Joppa. And Joppa is a suburb of Tel Aviv today. And it's very, got a very interesting history. Does anybody else remember uh, who was from Joppa in the Old Testament? Jonah. If I was a Sunday school teacher, I might have a lollipop to, to throw out there. <laughs> but he was staying in Joppa, in Joppa, and we're told he was staying at Simon the Tanner's house. And I actually have a photo of myself outside the Tanner's house back in two, from 2007. This is a very interesting detail, by the way, because the Tanner's trade was, with, was to work with the hides from animal carcasses. And that was something that was considered unclean in Jewish understanding. And so you read that small detail and wonder, well, what on earth was Peter doing here? It seems to me that here was a man on a journey. Maybe something was starting to thaw on him as God was preparing him for the big reveal through little encounters like this. So he's in Joppa. And then about 40 miles up the coast in Caesarea is this man, Cornelius. And God is in between them arranging the visions that would bring them together. And don't you always love it when God does that work in the two ends of the line at the same time? Because he's the ultimate strategist in that way. And so in the text, Cornelius' dream comes first. We're told it's about the ninth hour of the day. That's about three o'clock. Whenever an angel comes into his room, clears the day, scares the absolute wits out of him, and the angel reassured him by telling him that he was a good man whose alms and prayers had pleased God very much. And then the angel told him to send some of his men to Joppa where Peter was staying. And so the next day, about noon, as those men were approaching the city, Peter went up on the top of the roof to pray. Because as you know, in Palestine, roofs are flat and you would get up to them by a staircase up the side. And it was a really good place to kind of retreat to for a while. It was quiet, especially at the sea coast where the breeze would be coming in. And so he was up there on top of the roof and it's nearly lunchtime and his belly started to rumble and he got hungry. And so he stands down for something to eat. And while it was still cooking, he had a vision of his own that was much stranger than that of Cornelius's. And we're told that what he saw was heaven opened and something like a large sheep lowered down, tied by four corners, 
And when Peter looked inside it, he saw every kind of forbidden creature. What was in there? Well, all the things on the do not eat lists of Leviticus. Four-footed beasts and uh, creeping things and different fowls of the air. Basically all the stuff that you see them eating on I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. So I imagine camels and badgers and buzzards and bats and crocodiles and lizards and worst of all, a big, fat, smelly pig. All the things that would be enough for a good Jewish man to lose his appetite or even worse, to make his gag reflexes do acrobatics. And so as he's watching all of this mesmerized, he hears a voice. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he was shocked to the core. It amazes me to think that he didn't imagine this was the devil talking to him, that this was a temptation from the devil. But no, Peter recognized that voice. And his response was to say back, not so, Lord, by, by no means, Lord. He was absolutely adamant. I've never eaten anything that's unclean or profane. By no means. That was actually my response on Friday night as the Sudanese guys were walking past at a big plate of something. And I said, oh, that smells ni nice. What is it? And he said, oh, th those are goat's intestines. Would you like some? And I said, maybe later. But inside I was saying, by no means. Peter was disgusted. He said no. I think he was a bit of an ulcer man. He, he had this habit of saying no a lot. Reminds me of the time whenever Jesus tried to wash his feet and he said no way. No way. And it was the same kind of an outburst here. He was so revolted by such a command. He refused to obey, even though it was God that was giving it to him. Kind of goes to just show us how ingrained these dietary laws were in the Jews. It wasn't just a matter of culinary habits. It was a matter of theology. It was a matter of identity. And yet, what does he hear back? That same voice equally as adamant, and it says, Peter, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And it was authoritative. And we're told that this, this whole thing was repeated three times over because it amazes me, God always seemed to have to say important things to Peter three times. And then the sheep was hauled back into heaven again, and Peter was left on the rooftop absolutely bamboozled. The text says that he was sitting wondering to himself what this all meant. The correct phrase is he was thinking seriously and thoroughly about this. This experience brought about in Peter an intensity of thought. He was wrestling in his mind over it. He was trying to process it. The next thing he knows, there's a creek at the gate. And lo and behold, Cornelius' men arrive looking for him. And they tell him that they're there because of a vision too. And the Spirit spoke to Peter. And he was able to put two and two together. And we're told he even invited them in, which was like huge in itself. Because even though it was easier for a Jew to have Gentiles stay with them than the other way around, this was still a big step forward. He, can you see again the journey that this man is coming on? Hospitality to the Gentiles. You've got to watch that hospitality thing. It's a slippery slope. The more you do it, the more you might just find out that those others are not all that different. And so the next day he got up and he went with them to Caesarea where Cornelius was. When he came in through the door, Cornelius fell down at his feet to worship him, but Peter wouldn't have it. He says, stand up, I'm just a man like you. 
And Cornelius took him into his house, which was full of all his relatives and friends. It all gathered to hear what was going to be said. And that really took Peter aback. Because, I mean, he prepared himself to speak to one Gentile, not a whole house full of them. He said to them in verse 28, Now you know it's not right, it's not lawful for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. Imagine, that was the first thing that came out of his mouth to all these people gathered. And I'm sure when they heard it, (laughs) their hearts must have dropped. They waited for this great man that Cornelius had got them all stirred up about, referred to by an angel and everything. And here he is now turning out to be like everybody else, treating them like they're dirty or infectious or like he might catch something from being in the same room as them. But, he said next, you know, I love that word but because it changes everything. In fact, sometimes I think the whole gospel swings on that small word. You want to do a brilliant personal Bible study? Go and look up all the big buts in the Bible. I know that sounds dodgy, (laughs) but there's lots of them there. You were children as wrath, even as others, but God. You were like sheep going astray, but now are with. We even sing about it. We were lost, but now are found. Blind, but now can see. It's a small word, but there's so much in it. It means things can change. It means there's more to come. It means you don't always know everything there is to know. But, said Peter, God has just showed me that I shouldn't call anyone profane or unclean. And so when I was sent here, I came without objection. So why did you send for me? And Cornelius relayed to him the whole saga about the angel and what he told him to do and who he told him to send for. And then he said... So now here we are. We're all gathered here together in the presence of God to listen to whatever the Lord has commanded you to say to us. And what a fertile audience it was. And they were all sitting there with eyes like saucers, like cows looking over a hedge. And so in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and he began by telling them what he had just learned. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. What a radical thing to say. If anyone in that room took a breath for a full minute after he'd said it, there was something wrong with them. Because this was hot off the press. This was, you know, this was new news. Peter had just discovered it. And then he went on to tell them about Jesus, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus who he was, what he did, how he went around healing all that were oppressed by the devil, how he was slaughtered, raised to life on the third day, the way of forgiveness, the way of new life to be found in his name. He told them it all. And it says in verse 44 that while he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone in the room, both Jews, those with Peter, and all of Cornelius' house, everyone. And everyone began speaking in tongues and praising God, so much so that Peter could hardly make himself heard as he called out, can anyone forbid water from baptizing all these people who have just received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And they were all baptized there and then on the spot. And in doing so, Peter had just done something that no one on earth had authorized him to do. The man with the keys of the kingdom 
It just opened the doors to those that had previously shut out. People that he wasn't even supposed to associate with. He didn't check anyone up at the headquarters of Jerusalem first. He didn't bring down an apostolic committee to make a doctrinal inquiry first. He didn't even quote a verse of Scripture to back it up. He just based what he said and did on the fresh revelation that God had given him and on his newly discovered belief that Christ is Lord of all and not just Lord of some. And it was remarkable and it was revolutionary and it was a total game changer. And it got Peter in big trouble. Because when he arrived back in Jerusalem, and you can read this on in chapter 11, the Jewish brothers, they had jumped all over him. As hard as it was to take, though, that's understandable because these other Christians you see up in Jerusalem, they hadn't gone through the same spiritual pilgrimage of discovery that Peter had when he came to accept these Gentiles as full believers. They hadn't had the same encounters that he had had. And all of life is about encounter. And this is something that we have to try and understand, that criticism is something that any creative person who tries to lead the church into new areas of ministry and opportunity is going to face. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. People always resist change. And so the questions were manifold. They said, why did you go to that house in the first place, Peter? And what had possessed you to eat their unclean food? And what on earth were you thinking? Baptizing pagans like that on the spot. You see, from their perspective, Peter had sold out. He had compromised. He crossed over the dividing line between God's people and other people and gone way too far, disregarded the law. And so knowing their sincerity, knowing the genuineness of their concern that this was based on, you know, noble motives, the desire to honor God, in chapter 11, as gently as he could, Peter explained to them what had happened to him. And he did it so gently and so patiently, bit by bit as it had all happened. And how he previously had been in the same boat and thought the same way. But how God had come and knocked that on its head and given him, you know, something else instead. A vision that included all creatures, great and small, and all people whom God alone had the right to call clean or unclean. And so in actual fact, he hadn't sold out at all. He'd actually traded up. And when he saw what happened in Cornelius' house, he knew he was right. And look at what he says in verse 17 of chapter 11. He said, if God gave them the same gift that he gave to us, then who was I to think that I could withstand God? In other words, who was I to say no when it was so clear that God had said yes? And when he said that, everyone in the room got really quiet. And this is what I love about this. In that moment, their collective posture moved from a closed one to an open one because they trusted Peter so much and they could see God must be in this and thus they too experienced conversion. You see, Cornelius and his household weren't the only ones to be converts in this story. Conversion means a change of mind and heart. Peter, all the other Christians, they were all converted too from a really narrow, legalistic understanding to one with a lot of room in it. And altogether, they praised God and they said in verse 18, so then, 
even to the Gentiles, God must have granted repentance that leads to life. And at that point, a major transition was established, and here we all are today as a result. Well, what a story this is. No wonder Luke took his time to write it all out. Of course, there's so much in it for us. And even though the old Jewish-Gentile issue may not really be on our radar in the same way today, the principles, the implications are still very much intact because it's about growth, openness, spiritual evolution, allowing God to be God even when it cuts across our deeply held prejudices. And let me just say, we all have them. You know, none of us can help how we were raised, our upbringing, what we heard, what we were taught, our conceptions, our misconceptions. And what's often at the back of them, if you peel it back, is often fear. Fear of the other, fear of difference, fear of the unfamiliar, fear of being wrong. It's all in there. And what I've found is that often those who say they're not prejudiced sometimes are the most prejudiced of all. Prejudiced against the prejudiced. Peter was rooted in that kind of way of thinking. And it took a drastic message from God to break into it. And I would say for some of us here today, it's the same. You know, I don't know how many of you were brought up like me in a really typical Northern Ireland firebrand, blood in the book Christianity. I know some of you were brought up in a milder form, maybe of Presbyterianism. <laughs> but for me, it was the blood in the book. I'm going to tell you this. I was the exact young, legalistic, Pentecostal Christian that you think I was. Hair in the side shade, creased trousers with a belt, short sleeve shirt. In fact, somebody asked me one day, was I part of the Hitler Youth? <laughs> no worldly music, no dancing, no cinema, definitely no shopping on a Sunday. The very first job I ever had, I wore a little badge there that said, Jesus saves. I wore it for about six months, and then one day someone asked me what bank he was saving with, and I was so cross I took it off after that. <laughs> Back then we had two main tactics that we were trained in, because this was our only paradigm. This was the only sea that we swam in. We had nothing else to draw from. This was it. And there were two tactics to it. Number one was offensive. In other words, what was put into our hands was a certain set of ap uh, apologetics. We were taught how to explain the gospel. Some of you will know about the little wordless book, remember? Black and white and red and green. <laughs> and then, uh, if not that, there was uh, the broken bridge. So here you are here, here's God, the bridge is broken. You need someone to, to bridge you across. Some of you might even remember <laughs> the way of the master, Ray Comfort, does any of you know that? Hopefully none of you know that. We were kind of trained to take people through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied in your life before? Have you ever looked at a person with lust in your heart? Have you ever stolen anything? Even if it was only a paperclip, then that means you're a lying, thieving, cheating adulterer. <laughs> Jeez. Thank goodness some of you have never been through that. The rest of us, I think, need counseling. We were the track generation. Never left the house without tracks. We'd leave them in phone boxes and cafe tables on the back seats of taxis. A particularly juicy one I had, it, it said on the top, God's judgment day. 
by J.C. Ryan. <laughs> In other words, we were on the offensive. And the Bible was used as the power play. We were right and saved and good and correct and going to heaven. And everyone else, these were the words that we used, were lost and wrong and corrupt and deceived. Watch out, we had our Bibles and we were prepared to use them against you. And then the other main tactic was not offensive, but the defensive. In other words, we kind of had this mentality that we were God's actual favorites. I mean, I know we wouldn't have said that out loud, but we definitely would have thought it because there were the Methodists and the Church of Ireland and you know, even the Presbyterians, they're wishy-washy. Definitely not the Roman Catholics, definitely not them. But we were the ones that had the full gospel. We had to guard it. We had to batten down the hatches. Better not be ashamed of it. Even if that meant going to five or six meetings a week, even if that meant the only thing on your playlist is Gaither gospel, even if that meant turning against your own self and suppressing your own humanity, had to do it. Because how else would God see your faithfulness? How else would you become a fisher of men? Can I tell you how, exactly how many fish I caught that way? Exactly zero. Zero fish that way. I don't know if I should even, if I should even tell you this. You're not going to like me after I tell you this. You're just going to have to re retroactively forgive me when I tell you this next story. But I remember once when I was about 20 on the 12th of July being given a scripture smock some of you might know what that is. It's like a vest, and on this side it has a verse, and on that side it has a verse. And I walked around, <laughs> Lord, Lord, why? I walked around with a scripture smock. On one side it said, the wages of sin is, <laughs> is death. And on the other side it said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How compelling. No fish. No one jumping into the net. It was our only paradigm. It may seem arrogant to you, but we had no other. We didn't think there was any other. It was just the tough cheese that came from subscribing to a tough gospel under a pretty tough God. And there were two things that eventually undid that in me. Two things that were my saving grace that restored me to sanity and to my humanity, and to that of others. One was that pesky gay thing that I abhorred, but no matter how much I kept pushing it away, it kept dragging me to face myself and face my reality. And the second thing was my own life discovery that prejudice cannot withstand proximity. That actually the closer you get to people that you call lost, wrong, corrupt, and deceived, the more you can see a reflection of yourself in them. The more you can see the reflection of the Imago Dei. You hear their story and you say, I'm just the same. And another slice of judgment comes off. You know, the Africans have a great proverb. They say, from a distance you look like a dinosaur. Come a little closer, you look like a monster. Come closer still, you look like an animal. Come closer still, you look like a human being. Come closer, you look like a neighbor. Come even closer still, 
you look like my brother. Prejudice gets choked by proximity. It's just a fact. And for me, it kept happening over and over again. And ironically, it was the most painful and the most liberating thing I've ever experienced. And it led to deconstruction, and then it led to reconstruction, and the journey just keeps going on and on, and God just keeps showing up in the most unexpected places among the most unexpected people, just like it did for Peter here. And do you know what I love about how this story ends? It's how deep and profound the change was in Peter's life because his humanity just, just comes shining through. And we even see that in the way in the next chapter when he's explaining to those Jewish brothers who are very irate with him about what had happened, how readily he admits to having been wrong before. He said, you know, I thought like that. I acted like this, but it was wrong. I, I was wrong, brothers. And that takes courage. And that takes grace. Because it's not easy to retract positions that you've advocated before. That can be embarrassing. But it can also go a long way to open the door for healing and for hope and for new doors of credibility in ministry. I was telling Stephanie the other week about Augustine. You know Augustine, the famous theologian from the early church whose famous book, Confessions, everyone knows about, whose theology and thinking went on to shape so much of Calvinism and Western Christianity. His famous book, Confessions, do you know that toward the end of his life he wrote another book? And it was called Retractions in which he retracted things that he'd written about earlier over which he changed his mind. Or Mahatma Gandhi. One day he was having an interview with the press and someone said to him, Mr. Gandhi, you have no integrity. Last week I heard you say something, this week you say something else. And he said, oh, the answer is very simple. This week I've learned something. This week I've learned something. And Peter too had learned something. He learned that sometimes the most gorgeous flowers grow in the wildest of places that you never imagined before. Because it's not up to us to dictate to the Spirit where He wants to blow. It's just up to us to keep up with the blowing of the Spirit and to inhale the beautiful scent. But it seems that we're not ready to do that until our posture is opened. And that might take a little bit of working. And I remember reading a story, a Tony Campolo story once, about this inner city pastor who served in a downtown, run-down, dwindling little church in a derelict part of the city. And the only way that he could financially survive and feed his family was to earn a little bit of extra money through an arrangement that he'd made with some local undertakers to do the funerals that no one else wanted to do. And so one day the undertaker phoned and he asked him if he'd take the funeral that none of the other pastors in the town wanted anything to do with. And he said, well, why not? And the undertaker said, because he died of AIDS. And all the people showing up for the service will probably be from that community, and nobody wants to touch them with a barge pole. And so he agreed to do it. He took the funeral, and about 30 men showed up and as he read and prayed and spoke, none of them, not even once, looked up at him. As he sat there in the pew staring at the floor, they kept their heads down. It seemed like they were afraid of making eye contact or something. 
when they got to the graveside, he stood on one side of the grave and they all stood on the other. And again, as he spoke, they all just stood there like statues, like they were frozen or something. And after the benediction, when he, mo he motioned that he was going to wrap it up and leave, none of them moved. And he came back and he said, look, is there anything more that I can do for you? Is there anything more that I can say? And after a bit of an awkward silence, one of them said, Psalm 23. I'd hoped that you might read Psalm 23. Would you mind reading that? And so the pastor read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in grief. And then another one spoke up and said, Isn't there something in the Bible? I remember when I was a kid being taught it, how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the pastor turned to Romans chapter 8 and he read, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then another one said, Can you tell us something about heaven? How does the Bible describe heaven? He turned over to Revelation 22. Neither death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain for all the former things are passed away. And Tony Campolo said that when my pastor friend told me the story, I really hurt inside. Because here was a bunch of men who were so hungry to hear the words of life. But they didn't go to church. They wouldn't set a foot in church. And they didn't go for the simple reason because they were convinced that church people despised them. And the reason they feel that way is because they came from churches and from families which despised them. And yet here was this one man and because he was willing to step out of his comfort zone and open up his posture, he discovered a beautiful flower growing in an unlikely place. Men poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting to know the love and grace of God. We're going to come to the table now. I'm going to invite Fran, Fran to come up and uh, start to play for us. But before we come up to the communion table this morning, I just want to close by reading to you a beautiful poem. And it'll be on the screen behind that I came across just this week by a lady called Susan Warden Gates. It's called The Spirit in the Oyster Shell. You know, this Tuesday, this coming Tuesday actually, in the children's prison in Dublin where I work, it will be the final day of school before summer. And we're going to make it a big celebration for them. So all the kids are going to come in. We're going to have certificates for them. There'll be music. There'll be magic tricks. There'll even be an ice cream van. And we're going to try and really make a big fuss over them. Because remember, 99% of kids end up, that end up in detention come from homes where they've experienced a lot of trauma a lot of dysfunction early on in their lives. Some of them, they've been in care homes their whole lives. No one to visit them. No one to ring them on the weekends. No one to give a damn. Little wonder they end up in prison because attention has to come from somewhere. And so we're going to try and make this day special. And so on Tuesday, all the campus is going to show up from the director at the top and the board of management to all the way down, all to the, all the household staff, the cleaners and the cooks and the teachers and everyone. And they've asked us to speak at it. And this will be my fourth time doing it. 
And so all week long, I've been racking my brain, what will I speak on, what will I speak on? Give me something to say. And I was standing in the shower the other morning, and I had a light bulb moment, a random thought. I'll talk to them about oysters. I'm a wee bit weird like that, you know, have these moments of illumination. And you say, what on earth has oysters to do with kids in detention? I brought one, I ordered it on eBay. Well, you know the parable of the oyster, don't you? Because the outer, on the outside, the oyster, it's not very much to look at. It's pretty hard, rough, irregular. Sometimes it can even be jagged. Do you know that you could cut your, yourself on an oyster shell? And sometimes oyster shells can be difficult to reach because they grow down in the muddy depths where they hide there among the dark reefs. When you look at an oyster at first glance, you know, its outer appearance, the mollusk, it wouldn't immediately signal to you that there was anything good inside, would it? Much less anything beautiful. Ah, but for those who'll be persistent, they know different. Because inside this unexpected, unglamorous, unlikely shell, deep inside, deep inside, in the secret place where no eye can see, there's something so wonderful resides, a costly pearl. And do you know how the pearl came to be? It didn't just appear. No, one day, young in its life, a grain of sand, an irritant, a parasite, invaded the wee oyster and caused it such a wound, such an injury, that to protect itself, it releases a substance to ease the pain. Over and over again, it covers it, coats it over layer after layer after layer until finally, after a long and gradual process, a pearl is formed. And this offending particle, this injurious thing, it becomes a gem of dazzling worth, stronger even than concrete, the treasure of suffering. I'm going to speak to these young people on Tuesday and tell them that they're all oysters. And that we're trying really hard to pry them open even when it's dangerous to our fingers because we know that there's something of inestimable worth in there even when they cannot see it themselves. And what I say to them, I say it to you today. And so let me read this poem from Susan Morton Gates. Deviously hidden from view in black river mud by the maker who longs to greet the few hungry enough, thirsty enough to fish it up and pry apart the mournful craggy shell. The oyster is God's humblest vessel. A seemingly uninspired afterthought, piece from nature's scrap, it is admittedly a hard sell. Tucked inside, like the prize in the Cracker Jack, is the pearl. Heaven thrills when someone picks and pockets it. We're going to stand together. Let's all stand as we come around the, the communion table this morning. I'm going to ask Fra and Fran just to play softly for a few moments. And while the music's playing, just make your response known to God in the quietness of your own heart. And as you make your response known, then please come, feel free to come up 
take the bread and the wine. And always remember, this is not a table for the worthy. This is a table for the hungry.